Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. My guest today is a journalist and a professor in journalism at the University of Oregon. He's also a regular contributor to major media outlets such as the BBC and Huffington Post. He recently published an article about social media bans in the Middle East, and that's how I found him. Please welcome Damien Radcliffe. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Nadia. How are you doing? I'm great. So I was at the airport in Qatar just the other day, as we were just talking about, and I couldn't use a WhatsApp to place a call, as I always do, every, most other places in the world. What exactly is going on with social media in the Middle East? Oh, that's a huge question. I mean, I think when we look at kind of social media in the Middle East, um, one of the first things that, that that comes to mind is the kind of breadth and depth of usage. And that's something that I've studied and written about over the course of the last decade. But I think one of the things that's really noticeable for people in a situation like you is that services and products that we might take for granted in other parts of the world are sometimes uh, blocked or banned or certain elements of functionality don't work. So, for example, with a lot of kind of video calling elements on Uh, on VoIP services like WhatsApp or like FaceTime, um, you're able to perhaps use some of the functionality, but not not all of it. Um, and you know, if we're if we're used to using these services in a particular way, suddenly it becomes a, a bit of a shock for the system. Right. Um, I know also like Clubhouse is banned in the UAE. So it seems like not just video, but even uh, voice uh, usage on these apps is being blocked. Um, Do you, do you have kind of a rundown of which apps are banned in which of the countries in the Middle East? The short answer is no. Um, and it can be really hard to actually get a sense of um, what is banned or uh, or what is not. Um, it's, it can be quite fluid. We've seen quite a lot of movement during the course of the pandemic where some things that had been blocked were unblocked. And it's going to be really interesting to see whether that continues. So services like uh, like Zoom, for example, or BlueJeans, um, a number of other uh, services, uh, Microsoft Teams, and others that had previously been very difficult to access or to use the sort of full functionality of were unlocked at the start of the pandemic. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see if uh, governments and regulatory authorities try to turn back the clock after people have been using it for a year, 18 months, perhaps, perhaps even longer. I suspect that would be very difficult to do. Right, because they did make an exception in many of the countries uh, in the Gulf uh, for Zoom because during the pandemic, people were using it to work or still using it to work, using it for online classes. So it's basically kind of a loophole because you could technically just schedule a Zoom meeting anytime you want to make a call the same way you would on the other apps. Um, so do you think it might lead to other apps being being allowed or um and also do you know if zoom is being monitored is that what prompted them to allow it do you know if they have any kind of deal with the company with it's microsoft right is it microsoft no it's not microsoft no it's 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 a, it's a Microsoft owned Skype, which has has had a similarly kind of problematic relationship and which was blocked in the UAE um, for a very long, long time. Um, and I think, you know, part of the reason for that um, was, you know, governments have always used the used licensing in most cases as the primary driver for the blocking of these services. So if you want to be able to provide a voice service, 
be that over a kind of traditional telephone or over the internet, you know, like Skype um, or, or, or other services, then you have to get permission from the relevant regulatory authorities. And um, it, some of the rules and regulations around this, they feel a little opaque uh, and they can be kind of hard to, to, to navigate. Um, and so what you will often find, you know, it takes a service like, like Skype, for example, which had been blocked for a long time in, uh, in UAE, but you could navigate around that by virtue of using a VPN, for example. And as you rightly just said, you know, with Zoom, the fact that that's open and it allows you for functionality to be able to, to talk akin to a phone call or akin to a video call that you might be doing on a service like FaceTime, which is still blocked. And, and banned means that users are able to sort of navigate their way around these uh, these restrictions. Yeah, exactly. So why are these apps, uh, which are used all over the world, such a threat to, to these countries, especially knowing that most anyone who's at all tech savvy knows how to navigate around them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, and it is a bit of a curio. I mean, particularly, as you said, you know, during the start of the pandemic, so many of these bans were, were lifted because there was a recognition of the fact that for businesses to, to work, for children to be able to attend classes and so forth, they had to have access to, to these technologies. And I suspect that that is a sort of a, a genie that is out of the bottle and the, the lid can't be put back on um, uh, with that. I think that the, re the the primary reason it's hard not to be cynical about it um but if you look at the um the markets for telecoms providers in many countries in the middle east the largest provider tends to be either owned by the government or the government is a large shareholder um and what we see when people are able to use video calling services and other You know, uh, services um, that allow them to make calls over the internet for free is that obviously their mobile bill is going to go down. They're not using their cell phone and paying their cell phone provider for data in the way that they that they once were. And so it's hard not to be a little cynical about that and say that maybe this is an effort to uh, to shore up you know, your profits to ensure people have to continue to use your services that they have to take out expensive um, data packages. Um, but of course, you know there are also security and, and cultural concerns, which also come up as well. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that, that too. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, if, if knowing that people, that the average person has, it will find a loophole, definitely someone who has, you know, bad intentions or will find even better loopholes. So, so what are your thoughts on this? Is this really, you think it's really helping to achieve whatever goals they have in terms of, of security or protecting, protecting themselves from, from any bad actors? Good question. And I'm not sure that it does. I mean, a, a classic example of this would be to look at Algeria. So every year during exam time, they block certain applications and the ones that are popular with school children and it, they do that on the basis of saying well this is to stop people from cheating in exams now i never cheated in exams i'm sure now you never did too but i'm sure if we'd wanted to or we knew people who did they'd be able to find a way to to navigate their way around these systems you know consumers tend to be smart and tech savvy and they can find a way to bypass um uh, these issues I think where this becomes more interesting, as you alluded to, to Clubhouse earlier, is kind of some of these new spaces where what we're seeing is um, online discourse and conversation um, taking place in the public domain that is perhaps 
unusual for the way in which the internet typically operates in the Middle East. And so I think you know, that is a, a source perhaps of, of greater concern is around what these platforms are being used for, how they're being used, some of the conversations that are being, being had around that. And I think those concerns are, are on both sides. You have governments um, that are not necessarily able to control the conversation or influence it or observe it in the way that they would be able to on kind of traditional platforms or on traditional um, social media. And at the same time, for consumers, it might feel a little bit like the, the Wild West right now. But at the same time, you don't know who's listening. You don't know what's being monitored or being recorded. And therefore, you know, self-censorship has been a huge part of the Middle East internet experience from the get-go. And um, if that's not a part of the way in which people are behaving on some of these new emerging social audio apps, it will become so, I think, very soon as people start to, to realise that um, you know, this, there are potential risks to them depending on, on how they use those platforms. For sure. Um, in your article, you mentioned some proprietary uh, technology that's being developed. What can you tell us about that? Yes, I thought this was really this was really interesting to see, uh, and it's part of a of a conversation that we've seen sort of on and off over the course of the the past few years. So, if, if you look back to sort of two thousand and eleven, two thousand and twelve, there were discussions um, in Iran about creating what they referred to as its own halal internet, so one that would conform to Islamic values, provide appropriate services, and essentially would be. You know, a, a walled garden experience that would um, not allow users to access content that was seen as inappropriate and out of step with the um, values of the uh, leadership there. And um, some of those kinds of discussions have been going on for at least the past decade. You know, I've been on panels and had conversations with people where this exactly has been the, the issue that has come up. You know, why are we relying on Facebook? Why are we relying on YouTube or kind of other platforms? How do we launch our own um, equivalent? And in Saudi Arabia, that's exactly what's happening um, right now, that there's a team of engineers and researchers at a, a government research facility, the King Abdulaziz City for uh, Science and Technology, uh, in Riyadh, they're working on creating their own WhatsApp equivalent at the moment, which they're hoping will be launched either late this year or, or early next year. That's so interesting. It'll be interesting to see also if they can make it as good as, you know, WhatsApp. We we know that yeah. there have been several uh, versions of similar platforms and some of them seem to work while others don't. So they'd have to be really savvy at like competing with, with other platforms, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I, I think it's going to be really, really important. The user experience with something like this is going to be, is going to really matter. So from the get-go or from a very early stage, if you're going to convince people that they need to change their behaviors and adopt new and different platforms, that's really hard to do when existing behaviors and habits are deeply ingrained. And where the service like WhatsApp has uh, what 2 billion users around the world, it has, you know, people are used to using it, they know how it works, their friends and family are on it. So when you create a new service, you've not only got to have a great user experience, but you're, you're your users have to also convince all the people that they're in contact with to use that service too, um, and you know that's that's not going to be not going to be easy to do at all. I mean, I think what's one of the things that's interesting about this is that the designers behind it have talked about not wanting to be reliant on 
foreign services. They've talked about concerns around kind of data and information being on external servers that are outside of the country. And so, so, that, so you know, there are security concerns in the way this is being talked about. But whether it will take off, I think, is really hard. Uh, to, it's, it's hard to see. I mean, it's not going to be easy to launch a new social network when there are so many others that are well-established and well-ingrained in our daily lives and, and habits and routines. Right. It would be really hard, for example, to get your friend, if you're in Saudi Arabia, to get your friend in Germany or New York to download this Saudi-owned app Um, especially, yes. especially knowing, you know, that maybe it's going to be that you don't have the same protections as you might in an app that's based in the U.S., for example. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating. And, to and see. that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I got excited and could <laughs> pick up on that. So, yes, I, I mean, I think it's such a huge point when you look at the size of the of the diaspora in the Middle East. So when you look at, uh, at people you know, from the Middle East who are now living in Germany, the States, the UK, kind of other parts of the world, uh, and also then look at people who've migrated into the region. And so in particular, um, in, in the Gulf region, but, but also um, elsewhere, you know, they're all using different products and apps and, and, and services. So if you have one that is established in one particular country, um, It can be very hard to convince people who are who are not based there to be able to access it, and in fact, they might not even be able to. I think that was one of the challenges we saw last year, where in UAE there was a new uh, VoIP service, so a voice over internet service that was introduced that one of the telecom providers there was trying to encourage people to use, and um, there was. I think a resistance to that from users who said, but we like using this service or all our friends and family around the world are on, are on other products. Why can't we use that? But then even if you did want to use this, this new service, would it be available to download from the app store in Canada, America, the UK, France? Not necessarily. So even with the best of intentions, if there, if there are these kind of products and services available, and let's say they're really, really good, people still not might be able to, to access it outside of the countries from which it originates. And you know that geographic footprint is a huge challenge for any new product. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that even if they were available on those, on those uh, you know, in the app shops around the world, they'd have to be pretty good at convincing people. So I was just thinking maybe they could take a clue from what they're doing with vaccines and offer like, they'd probably have to offer like free burgers like they're doing in New York <laughs> or even their free marijuana like they're doing in Washington State. That's actually what they're doing for, for people to get vaccines. So who knows? Maybe we'll see tricks like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you have to incentivize, you're right, you have to incentivize people to, uh, and, and particularly, you know, the moment when you look at the amount of platforms and tools that we use, you know, if, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact figure, but it's around about eight and a half different social media platforms that people in the, the Middle East um, use on a regular basis. That's a lot. So to put something else into that mix, it's got to offer something new and unique and exciting and interesting and engaging and it's also probably got to be free um, because most of those other services um, are, are free and have these huge global footprints and global teams working working behind them so launching something new you know it's a, it's a tough sell yeah well it's a, a space to watch um Damien, many people 
or have asked me actually when I was talking about uh, this conversation with you. Uh, what's going to happen to TikTok? India banned TikTok last year, and last month, TikTok uh, India-based CEO Nikhil Gandhi uh, resigned from his post. He was overseeing the Middle East, Africa, Turkey, and South Asia. So it seems like he wasn't so excited about staying in that position. Um, there's been a lot of talk uh, about TikTok being banned in various countries. Do you have any updates on, on this uh, saga? if I can call it that? <laughs> it, yeah, I think we can call it a saga for sure. I mean, it's definitely gone through many different ruminations already. And I think that's only going to continue. I mean, just today, it's really timely that we're having this conversation because just today, um, the White House um, announced that it's dropped Trump-era executive orders that attempted to ban uh, TikTok and WeChat in the US and has launched a new review looking at identifying national security risks with software applications and products and services that are linked to China. So that's just happening today in the US. So that conversation, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to run and run. And it's not necessarily going to be tied and unique to the, to the states, but that's perhaps the most high profile of those conversations. Right, definitely. Well, and India too has been pretty high profile if you follow India, uh, which maybe yeah. we don't tend to do that because they're kind of their own, uh, their own, I don't know, realm, if I can put it that way. It's such a huge country. It's its own market. Yeah. But it's also, yeah, it's also a market of over a billion people and it had a huge take up from TikTok and uh, on TikTok. And, um, you know, you can you can Google and find, you know, really great articles about how Bollywood stars and kind of other influencers in India were embracing that, that platform. So it's a very bold move to, um, to block it because, um, One of the, when I was thinking about 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 TikTok ahead of our, our conversation today, you know, one of the things I was thinking was, well, is it just too big to fail now? Is its reach so huge um, around the world and in markets like like the US, where you know, as of a year ago, already 90 million people were using TikTok every month, 50 million people were using it every day. Surely the government couldn't. Um, just take that away from users. But that was the discussion. And we saw that did happen in India. So, you know, it could happen. I think it's unlikely, but it could. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people be, will be really unhappy, but it's just the social media app. Let's be honest, right? There are worse things. Um, but since we're on the topic, <laughs> for, I guess for you... And I think also people will just, I think people will just then migrate to something else. So one of the things that's really interesting when you look at kind of pretty much any social network, even ones that people have a, a deep affinity with and they spend a lot of time, potentially hours a day using, they tend to be using services that are free to the point of usage and whenever you do research to say okay would you continue to use that app be that snapchat or facebook or twitter or instagram if they charged you for it like say netflix do um then people said no Uh, people consistently will say no because they value the fact that the service is free. They know that they can get a lot of that functionality elsewhere. They know that there's a ton of different applications um, that are out there. So yes, there might be some kind of hand-wringing if, if a service disappears. And don't forget services also get shut down. So when I look at like my, my students, you know, they're the Vine generation. They love that, that app and they have a lot of nostalgia for that because that's what they grew up with. But it had a couple hundred million users, not enough for a viable business model, which sounds crazy when you talk about those kinds of, kinds of numbers. Um, and it shut down. But a lot of the early functionality on TikTok in particular felt very similar and familiar if you'd been used to Vine. So I think people will 
find different ways to take the things they enjoy about an app like TikTok and find other spaces and places, um, be that Instagram Reels or uh, Snapchat or, or something else that we haven't, haven't perhaps even seen yet, they'll find a way to replicate that experience and all the things they love about that app, I think pretty quickly. Yeah, but I think the people who are the people who are making a living on on TikTok and making millions of dollars are the ones that are going to be most up in arms. So that will be that'll be a show. <laughs> um, so while we're on the topic uh, of censorship, since we have a few more minutes, I wanted to ask you, since you're a journalism professor and you think about these issues a lot, the world witnessed. Um, the Israeli bombing of the media tower in Gaza that housed AP, one of the world's biggest international news organizations, and Al Jazeera. And um, we're seeing every day on social media images of Israeli soldiers and their continued uh, efforts to kind of quell and silence journalists in Palestine, Palestine it seems. Do you think that the censorship is effective um, in the same way that we were talking about blocking these other apps? I mean, is, is it is it silencing news does it look good for for is it effective for the country any thoughts on this well you made a great point when we were talking about india and the blocking of tiktok there that that perhaps didn't make as much noise in some quarters as it as it should because it tends to be its own market and uh and not necessarily you know the world isn't necessarily watching what's happening in in india I think you can draw some parallels with what's been happening in Israel and Palestine, that there is a long track record of uh, difficulties and suppression faced by Palestinian journalists who are wanting to report on um, what's happening. And perhaps that hasn't had the same play and same attention as when you bomb a building that is um, contains the offices of the AP and Al Jazeera, because they have a much bigger platform to protest and um And react and, and respond to that. Um, and you know, it's been really interesting to see just how much coverage that has got. And, and again, this is a story that is continuing to develop and evolve. So just yesterday, Israel said um, that the, the tower in Gaza it destroyed was being used by Hamas to try and jam Uh, the Iron Dome, their defense system. Uh, there have been some accusations that um, AP journalists were familiar or knew that there was um, a Hamas presence in there and perhaps some of the things that they might be doing. And there's been kind of a strong pushback against that and a request for, okay, show me show me the evidence uh, for this. Um, it, it's just been, it's been interesting to see that, you know, some of the things that we saw in this instance are not new, but arguably because of the profile and the reputation of the organizations that were, were impacted, it's just got people talking about it a lot more than had been the, the case when, um, say, Palestinian media or Palestinian journalists had been impacted. Yeah. And as you pointed out, I think it's a common refrain that we hear coming uh, from from their side. But as you said, let's see the evidence for that. It's it's. It's an old story that has not yet to be proven. Um, Damien, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing all your research with us. So interesting. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you today. That's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Lots of love. See you soon. <laughs>